You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Okay, welcome to this podcast on Eat Wheat. My name is Dr. John DeYard, and welcome. Uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. This is based on my new book called Eat Wheat, uh, the scientific and clinically proven way to safely reintroduce wheat and dairy back into your diet, which is really cool because I totally get that a lot of people don't feel good when they eat wheat and dairy. And as we dig into this, we're going to have some interesting discussion about what might be the cause of that problem. And, uh, and it might not be wheat and dairy after all, but, but sit tight and we're going to talk a lot about some pretty cool science. So it's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, the uh, Eat Wheat book has over 600 scientific references to back up what I'm saying. So it's not, you know, just my idea. There's a lot of science that you haven't heard that I want to share with you, some of which I'll share tonight. Um, uh, the ebook was just released, which is really cool. And until September 21st, it's for 99 cents. You can get the ebook for 99 cents, which is a screaming deal, and read all about this, which is, I think, really my best work ever for sure. Uh, my most comprehensive work, definitely still in the genre of taking ancient principles and proving them with modern science, which we do here at LifeSpa, and that's something that we love to do. So, um, so that's for free uh, for 99 cents at eatweetbook.com. You go to eatweetbook.com and, and get that. You can also go to uh, LifeSpa.com right on the homepage. You can click over there. And we're also offering a contest where we have three winners uh, for those folks who sign up and buy and o- open up the ebook, um, and the contest is something like, you know, open up the book and tell us the first, you know, some question like, what are the first words in chapter three or something like that. And if you answer it correctly, um, and there's a lottery or something like that, we have three winners, and each winner gets a consultation with me and also $100 worth of free herbs from our store, which is a pretty cool contest. I have three winners, so lots of folks are going to win. And that's at eatweetbook.com or at lifespot.com to learn about how to get the ebook uh, for 99 cents up until September 21st. The actual hardcover doesn't release until January. Uh, so now's a chance to get a free preview. It's not a preview, it's the entire book, uh, which is really cool, but it's an ebook form and you can't get the hard copy in your hands until January. Okay, which is really, really cool. All right, one other thing I want to share with you tonight uh, about upcoming podcasts. Uh, we have one coming up on October 4th, which is our next podcast, which is on acne, rashes, and wrinkles. Uh, really important to to understand the outer skin as opposed to the inner skin. We're going to talk a lot about how to navigate around those issues. And then also, a lot of you have signed up uh, for my free training called Detox Your Body Naturally. It's a free training. It's four video series about how and everything you need to know about cleansing and detox. It's one of, one of my most, my, really one of my best video trainings that I've ever done about understanding detox, how to do it at home, and all the pros and cons and ins and outs of how to do a detox. And that course sign-up ends tomorrow night. So if you haven't signed up for the free training, it's free, no obligation. Get all this really cool information, download it, and uh, you know, and watch it at your leisure. But make sure you at least get the information. It's pretty cool. Uh, and that's the, uh, the Detox Your Body Naturally training. It's a free four-video series, and it ends tomorrow. And you go on my homepage at LifeSpot.com and learn all about that, which is pretty cool, I think. Um, 
Alrighty, so uh, here's a picture of Eat Wheat, so you can take a look so you know what you're looking for. I'm super excited. I love the, I love the uh, cover. It's all about a piece of bread that you can break and put butter on it, and that has become taboo. The gluten-free industry is a $15.6 billion industry predicted to be in this year, 2016. That's a lot of money for telling us that gluten is now the new poison. It is a hard-to-digest protein. Absolutely, I will give you that. It is hard to digest. And if you don't digest it completely, it acts as an irritant to the intestinal skin. And it will cause problems, and so will casein, and so will nuts, and so will seeds, and so will soy, and so will corn, and so will many things that are difficult to digest. You know, in general, uh, a lot of these difficult foods uh, like grains and beans and legumes, uh, they have what are called different types of anti-nutrients on them because they're harvested in the fall or they're, 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 they're ripe in the fall. They would fall off the, the vine and lie there dormant all winter long and then they would sprout with the rains and the mud of spring. So all that time, they have to be, protect themselves from bacteria and enzymes that bacteria make to eat up those grains. So they protect themselves with these kind of sort of anti-nutrients uh, like lectins and phytic acids and, and other anti-nutrients. And so they are very uh, challenging for us to digest. Um, Ancient uh, people figured this out a long time ago, how to make wheat a little bit more digestible. Simple things like soaking the grain, sort of sprouting it, uh, activates enzymes that break down the, the lectins and the anti-nutrients, uh, uh, um, fermenting the grain, like a sourdough bread, for example. Studies have actually shown that when you actually make sourdough bread, which if you do it right, takes about three days to bake a loaf of bread. If you do it wrong, which is what you see in the supermarkets, it takes an hour or two hours to bake a loaf of bread. And that bread will stay squishy on the shelf for days and weeks and maybe even a month, and it'll still stay squishy. Regular artisan, traditional, three-day-old, three-day-to-bake bread that's soaked and fermented will actually render the gluten in that bread literally gluten-free. They've given, studies have shown when they give that bread to people with celiac, it actually creates no inflammation in their intestinal tract. So it was literally safe for people with celiac to eat that wheat. Now, I am not suggesting that people with celiac eat wheat or any version of wheat or sourdough versions of bread at all. If you have celiac, we're not talking about eating wheat. What I am talking to you about is people who were once able to digest bread and dairy and other hard-to-digest foods and have watched themselves over the years slowly taking foods out of their diet. One out of their diet, the next thing out of their diet, they take wheat out of their diet, they take dairy out of their diet, and they feel better for a while. And then they take meat out of their diet, and they feel better for a while. Then they start eating chicken or fish, become a vegetarian, maybe a vegan, maybe even a raw foodist. And what happens to a lot of folks and my patients for years and years, I've watched them, I've take, the doctor says, you know, you have indigestion, take wheat and dairy out of your diet. That's a really simple solution for a lot of people. But it hasn't really addressed the underlying cause is what's really causing the wheat and dairy. Because you take the wheat and dairy out, you feel better for a little while. 
And then the symptoms come back. You take something else out, something else out. Now there's not a whole lot of food left for us to eat. And that, I think, is a real problem. Because you got to remember, our digestive pathways are the same as our detoxification pathways. If you can't digest foods well, you can't detoxify well, right? So if you were once able to digest wheat and dairy and now you can't, what has happened is your ability to break down hard-to-digest foods has broken down. And you can take them out. And I'm not saying you have to eat wheat and dairy. You never have to eat wheat and dairy again. That's not a requirement for optimal health. But if you once were able and now you can't, something went wrong. And it isn't only the fact that we've processed the heck out of our wheat. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. It's more than that. Our digestive system, I call it the great digestive breakdown, has become so weak, we can't break down hard-to-digest foods. And in addition to that, our ability to detoxify. You ready for this? The 400 billion pounds of toxic chemicals that are dumped into the American environment every single year, 72 million of them are cancer-causing, Those many of which are very difficult for us to break down and digest, most of which are fat soluble, like the mercury that comes from the coal mine plants that dump mercury into the clouds, into the atmosphere, that filter down on every single organic vegetable. And they found that those mercury particles find their way through the digestive system, into the lymph, into the blood, into the fat cells, and even into your brain. And that's a real problem. Air pollution, in a study just published by the uh, British Journal of Medicine, found that there are iron particles called magtites that are found in millions of them in our brain tissue. They haven't linked them to degenerative neurological conditions yet because they're brand new. But again, we we have air pollution. We have stuff coming from the sky like mercury that is a fat soluble heavy metal and other fat soluble environmental pollutants and toxins are digestible. But our ability to digest those hard-to-digest foods has broken down. The signpost of that, you can't eat wheat and dairy today and once you were able. Sure, take wheat and dairy out of your diet if you feel lousy eating it, for sure. But don't stop there, is my point. Let's fix the problem. Let's reboot digestion. Let's navigate around the processed foods in our diet. Get back to eating clean. Clean out those fat cells in our brain. And then if you want to eat wheat and dairy, that's your call. But it is nice to be able to find some really good bread and break that bread with a friend and not have this thing that's been in our diet for not 10,000 years, like some of the experts like to tell you, For 3.4 million years, up to 4 million years ago, ancient humans were found, in the teeth of ancient humans, they found gluten from wheat and barley and what are called C3 grasses, which early humans ate a lot of. Average, about 40% of their diet of these early humans, way before they learned how to hunt. This is what they ate. When they, when the rain, when the ice age came and the rainforest shrunk and the, the early humans had to migrate into the grasslands and the grasses were big and there was wheat berries hanging off of them, the study at the University of Utah found that they can eat, gather up enough wheat berries off of the, the wheat in just two hours to feed them for the entire day. Get a few people to do it, gather it up, grind it up, make yourself into a gruel, and that's exactly what happened. So we don't have just 10,000 years of genetics to digest wheat. We have millions of years to digest wheat. 
And in addition to that, which I think is quite fascinating, studies show that we didn't actually start eating and hunting our own meat until 500,000 years ago. We have science to show that we've been eating wheat, gluten, the poison of our day, for 3.4 to 4 million years ago. So I just don't understand that. How can we say we don't have the genetics to do it? We have been eating it for a long time. The science shows that we have microbes in our mouth that produce enzymes specifically tailored to break down gluten in our mouth, in our esophagus, in our stomach, in our small intestine, and in our large intestine. In addition to that, the body makes its own enzymes, one called DP, DDP4, which is an enzyme that specifically breaks down the hard-to-digest proline-rich epitopes, the, the glottons, the alpha glottons, that are very difficult to digest that we deem as the, the glutinous poison. We have enzymes to pull it off. We have microbes to pull it off. So we have all the raw material. And when you think about digesting wheat, we have enzymes and, and, and microbes for that in the mouth, the esophagus. Every part, there's part, every part of the digestive system has something to do with breaking down and digesting and eating wheat. So for me to say, or me to believe that we just don't have the genetics to do it, when you look at the science and we have, I mean, I think the body did a pretty good job of trying to figure this thing out. Now, people say, well, there's poisons on grains. Now, remember, most of the gluten-free folks are against grains in general. Okay, so we're talking about beans, talking about all grains like rice, rice and beans. I don't think humans would be here today if we didn't have rice and beans. That's the mainstay of pretty much most of Asia for thousands upon thousands of years. Um, you know, all the grains, nuts, seeds, have lectins, they have phytic acids. Now, so some of these, like I said in the beginning, hard to digest anti-nutrients are things we say, well, they're really hard to digest and they're poisons, we shouldn't eat them. Okay, if you talk to any anthropologist, you're gonna find out that humans evolved eating a whole lot of poisonous stuff. Tomatoes were poisonous, potatoes were poisonous. So many of the foods we ate were poisonous, and slowly but surely, we hybridized them to be less poisonous. So we eat tomatoes and potatoes today. But at one point, way back when, they were very poisonous. But we figured out a way to adapt and digest some of these foods. So why is it that wheat, which was really not as poisonous as a tomato or a potato, and cultures like in, in Russia, I went to Russia, I used to lecture there years ago, and, and there's an, in South India, there's a, a recommendation, don't, don't eat potatoes. And, uh, and my, my teacher was there, and he made the recommendation in front of a group of Russians and said, don't eat potatoes. And I was like, this isn't going to go over big, because that's all they eat. So, so you know, we, we have the genetics to digest wheat. And yes, we started hybridizing wheat around 12 to 13,000 years ago. But everything's hybridized. Tomatoes are hybridized. Everything we eat, carrots are hybridized. Apples are massively hybridized. So why is it that just because wheat was hybridized, it becomes problematic? People say, well, well, well let me give you also an example of how quickly the body genetically adapts to a new food. Dairy products, for example, have, dairy has lactose, a sugar in it. And, it's pre, and all mammals can digest the lactose, the milk sugar, with an enzyme called lactase. But after they're weaned, they generally stop producing the lactase because they stop drinking milk. 
And that's the argument that we shouldn't drink milk. Well, Northern Europeans who took the cows into the Alps and probably wouldn't have survived those winters without cows for making cheese and fermenting the dairy and making it last through the winter and all that, um, they developed something called lactase persistence, which is the ability to make the lactase enzyme into adulthood. And a very large percentage of Northern Europeans still have that ability to pull off uh, the digestion of dairy after they're weaned. It's called lactase persistence, one of the only hard, fast, true ways that we know that the body genetically adapted to a food. And that was in way less than 10,000 years. We've been hybridizing wheat for fact over around 12,000 years, eating it for 3.4 million years, eating meat for only 500,000 years. So when you think about it logically, we have way more genetics for digesting wheat than we do meat by millions of years. So what is it that happened? Well, a lot of people say, well, it's the, it's the gluten. They changed the gluten in the wheat. It's in the last hundred years, and that's why we have all the celiac diseases rising and all these problems. Well, that's actually not really the facts. The fact is, is that they did a study with ancient wheat versus modern wheat, the, the Kamut wheat, which is an ancient version of wheat with modern wheat, and they found that the ancient wheat had two times as much of the alpha-galadins, the really bad, hard-to-digest glutens in it, than the modern wheat did. So we're talking about the ancient wheat had two times as much gluten as the modern wheat did. And the ancient wheat reduced inflammation by two times compared to the modern wheat. And the ancient wheat lowered blood sugar, lowered cholesterol, significantly in comparison to the modern wheat, okay? So when people say ancient wheat is better, well, maybe it's better, but it had twice as much gluten. It had all these benefits, so it isn't, how could it be the gluten? And I do think ancient wheats are better because whenever you can get things that are more pure and natural, the better. But the point being is this wheat that had all the benefits had twice as much of the hard-to-digest gluten. So, so can it be the gluten? In the year 1900 compared to the year 2008, the average American ate 86 pounds more wheat flour in the year 1900 than they did in the year 2008. Okay, well that's sort of crazy, right? How could all of a sudden we have 86 pounds per year more wheat flour in our diet in 1900 than we do today? yet we're blaming everything on gluten when we eat 86 pounds less, can that really make sense or can that really add up? So there's a, a lot of, of factors here that I think are, are really important for us to, to look at that take us beyond understanding that gluten is the new poison. Yes, it's a hard to digest protein and so is casein and dairy and so are a lots and lots of foods. One of the other arguments that they make about wheat is that it has endorphins, exorphins, uh, that make us addicted to eat wheat. So we have to eat it again and again. Uh, the book uh, Wheat Belly uses this as a pretty strong example. They say that everybody gets addicted to wheat. Well, and, they say, and one of the science studies that they show is that when they gave people who, ate, who were wheat eaters an a, a opioid blocker, because these, these endorphins are opioids and, and they're addictive, right? Opioids are addictive. And they gave them an opioid blocker and people re reduced their intake of wheat significantly when they block the opioids. Well, 
They guess what else has opioids in it? Mother's milk has opioids. Spinach has opioids. Meat has opioids. Lots of foods have opioids. Could it be that mother's milk has opioids in it because they want us to come back for more? Because it's part of our survival? And certain foods that have a sweet taste and opioids in them are, are, are something that our brain recognized as safe and good? Because in ancient times, early humans, we have one taste receptor for sweet and hundreds for bitter because bitter can either be good or it can kill you. So we have all this, you know, this, uh, this discernment for bitter, but one for sweet. If it tasted sweet, it was good for you, good to go. And if it made you happy, had a little endorphin in it, it was also good for you. So anytime you took something sweet from then on, it was good. You knew it was going to kill you. So that was kind of our model for millions of years. And no doubt we've overshot the sugar runway, and we're going to get to that for sure. But don't forget that those endorphins kept us coming back for more. So if mother's milk has endorphins and wheat has endorphins, and we've been eating wheat since, since 3.4 to 4 million years ago, and that was the grasslands when we first basically evolved out of the rainforest when we were eating bananas and leaves from trees, and we evolved into the grasslands, the savannas, which the continent of Africa was covered by, and we could sit in the grass and pick on wheat berries or grind them up. Seemed like a pretty easy job for me, and that's one of the things. And also, an enzyme called amylase, around that period of time surged in human genetics, that the genetics for making this amylase grain to digest sugar and wheat surged at that point in time, suggesting again that we did increase our diet of more tubers, which are starches, and also wheat. So there's really interesting science about how this whole thing unraveled, okay? So they gave um, people who were meat eaters an opioid blocker just like they gave people who are wheat eaters an opioid blocker, and they stopped eating wheat. So therefore, wheat is addictive, right? Well, they gave meat eaters an opioid blocker, and it reduced their consumption of meat by up to 40%, right? They gave people who ate regular food opioid blockers, and they also reduced their intake of everything significantly. So can we just say that you give an opioid blocker to people who eat wheat, they stop eating wheat, so therefore the opioids in wheat are bad for us? No. Now, is it the sugar? Well, it could be. No doubt that wheat has a high glycemic index. Uh, no, doubt, no doubt that a lot of the gluten-free products have even a higher glycemic index. And what David Perlmutter did in the Grain Brain book was, and I think the book is brilliant, and I think it's a great book, but I think you have to tighten it up a little bit. A lot of uh, scientists are, are uh, very suspicious or um, critical of the science that he used because what he did was he said that we know that sugar in the diet can, can cause a predisposition to Alzheimer's and brain sort of grain issues due to excess sugar in the diet. There's no disputing that. I've written a ton about that. I've got a free ebook for people to learn how to get the sugar out of our diet and bring that back into balance. All about that. But to make the case that just because wheat has a high glycemic index, it therefore acts exactly like sugar, and the studies show that sugar causes Alzheimer's and brain you know, uh, neurological concerns and cognitive decline as we age, it doesn't show that wheat causes that. So we made a little bit of a jump. Just because wheat had a high glycemic index, it therefore 
acts like sugar, and has the, the problems that sugar has. And the problem is, it's not true. Because I cite in my book, we have 600 scientific references, and there's literally volumes of science to show that wheat actually lowers the risk of Alzheimer's, increases cognitive function, increases memory, lowers diabetes risk in many studies. So how can we have, and I wrote in chapter two of the book, I, I kind of cite, here's all the science that says wheat is bad for diabetes, it's bad for weight, it's bad for constipation, it's bad for heart disease, it's bad for Alzheimer's, bad for cognitive function, bad for depression. And I cite all the science that says wheat is exactly good for all of those conditions. So I'm going, and I'm reading all this, and I'm sort of writing about these in my blogs as I write, and I'm going, I, I, no one's hearing this other side of the science. All we're doing is hearing that wheat is bad. And the risk that I saw was that just by taking wheat and dairy out of your diet, it leaves us vulnerable and exposed to the 400 billion pounds of toxic chemicals in our environment that you have to digest. So I felt like compelled to write Eat Wheat because I really feel like we're doing a really dumb thing by thinking I solved all my problems by you know, deeming wheat a new poison and taking it out of my diet. And by not re rebooting digestive strength, that sets us up for the inability to break down hard to digest other proteins like nuts and seeds and other things we need to, nutri to, to nutrify ourselves, but also to detoxify the chemicals in our environment, which I think will take us out if those accumulate in our fat and our brain tissues, which they are. So it's so critically important, which is why I'm such a big fan of like our Colorado cleanse where we reboot digestion and detox. I never just detox. It's always a reboot digestion and a detox. You go in there and pull all the yuck out of your fat cells in your brain and the liver goes, hey, who did this? I put all that stuff in the fat, stuffed it in the attic in the basement because I was too busy. I couldn't, I don't have to digest this stuff any longer. Why not reboot that function and then help the body shovel out the waste and the yuck? It's really, really important. So how did all this stuff start? Well, in 1960, they took cholesterol, right? And they put it on the nutrient concern list. And they said it's bad, causes heart disease, based on some pretty flimsy science, actually. But because the, 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 the scientific community, the medical community, was in desperate need to solve heart disease, which was on the rise, they took cholesterol, animal fats had a lot of cholesterol in it, butter had a lot of cholesterol in it, had to be the link. They made some link based on a study with rabbits. They gave rabbits a high cholesterol diet. They all got heart disease and died. Rabbits are vegetarians. They don't eat animal fats, so they probably would and expected to get that. In the same study, they gave rats the same high cholesterol diet and they thrived on it, but they didn't think about the rats who are you know, omnivorous, they gave the vegetarian rats this cholesterol and they didn't do well. And that was one of the studies that they used as a premise for convincing the world that cholesterol was bad. And then in the last 20, 30 years, any study that came out that said X, Y, or Z increased cholesterol was automatically deemed to cause heart disease. So we did the same thing with, with gluten, right? We said anything that raises blood sugar, like gluten has a high glycemic index, so therefore it must act exactly like sugar and cause Alzheimer's. We did the exact same thing with cholesterol. We said anything that raises cholesterol must cause heart disease. Well, guess what? We found out now this year, 2016 in January, the FDA took cholesterol and took it off the nutrient concern list and butter is back, the cover of Time Magazine. Because we made a big mistake. Are we making a similar mistake today by taking something like wheat and dairy and 
and, and uh, all grains and beans out of our diet because they've got lectins and some phytates and different hard-to-digest foods that we've adapted to digest for millions of years if the digestive system was working well, right? And that's really the big question. How do we get the digestive system to work well? Well, let's, let's talk about that, how we do that. Um, but let's talk about wheat a little bit more first. Wheat, as you all know, um, like most grains, are harvested in the fall and they are uh, you know, available for us in the winter. Fruits are generally harvested in the late summer or fall to be eaten in the late fall before they go bad. Uh, the paleo folks make a big stink about the fact that fruits are bad for you, which is really sort of hard to gather, grab, get our head around when we take an apple and fits in our hand and how we're not supposed to eat that. Um, but it has fructose in it, and fructose will store more quickly as fat in the body, and that can cause problems, right? Uh, can help the body gain weight. And we're all about nobody wants to gain weight here, right? So that's one of their statements. Well, wheat is also a grain that's harvested at the end of the summer. And, we, and then it's designed to be eaten in the wintertime. Well, here are some interesting facts. The enzyme we talked about that was genetically increased around 2 million years ago, amylase, to digest wheat, also increases in the wintertime, just exactly when it's harvested. It still happens in your body today. And that enzyme is linked, a lack of that enzyme is linked directly to a condition called Baker's asthma, when bakers inhale too much wheat, they don't have enough amylase to digest it, they get an asthmatic condition, directly linked to, to wheat intolerance. And it increases in the wintertime. The digestive system in general is stronger in the wintertime to digest hard to digest grains and nuts and seeds and legumes and beans, all of which are harvested in the fall to line dormant all winter to be sprouted in the spring. And that's when our digestive system strengthens, when we can digest these hard to digest foods. You know, this whole idea that, that, that just wheat is just bad, throw it out the window and not really understand the depth or the subtlety of how nature pulled this off after three and a half million years, I think is just so cherry picking the science and not really looking deeply. And, and with all due respect, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, watching you know, natural doctors and medical doctors in the last 10 years get on the bandwagon of saying, don't eat wheat, don't eat dairy. That solves all your problems. It's the most simplistic concept that I've ever heard. I've been like, you know, I've heard that for my entire career. Like, you can't just tell somebody to eat wheat and dairy and, 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 and solve all their problems. You got to go back and fix the real problem. And, and it's so easy to say that, but it's difficult to reboot and really get the body to digest well. Without saying, here, take a probiotic, which is like the new thing for the rest of your entire life. I don't believe in that either. We should be able to get the body's digestion to be able to digest well, detoxify well, and create its own microbiology for the rest of your life and not have to take a pill or a powder to make that happen. But we're just like in the, you know, give me the quick fix. And if it is an antibiotic, give me a digestive enzyme that does the digesting for you. Give me an HCL pill to help strengthen my digestive fire for me. Why not help the body pull this off by itself, right? Why can't we do this? So seasonally, we know that wheat is, is designed to be eaten in the winter, not three times a day for 30 years in a row. And we've overeaten this very difficult to digest grain. We have a situation where the, the, the replacement for the fats when they took cholesterol out of our diet were trans fats and processed oils and cooked oils. 
And what they did was they fed us these fake fats that were indigestible. It's like not washing your stove for 20 years. It causes this grease in your liver and congests your bile ducts and causes real, real problems. Now, studies show that when you eat a processed food diet with all these bad, undigestible fats, which are in, by the way, every single loaf of bread. Look at the ingredients of your bread, and you'll see cooked oils in them. As soon as they cook an oil, it goes rancid. And if they use the oil that's on the, the grocery store shelf with the clear bottles, that stuff has already been bleached, refined, deodorized, and boiled. It is completely undigestible. And you cook it again and bake it in, in a bread, it's completely undigestible. And it clogs and congests your liver and your gallbladder. Studies show that when people eat those foods, it increases the risk of what's called metabolic syndrome by 141%. That means increased cholesterol, increased triglycerides, lower HDLs, belly fat, and high blood pressure and high blood sugar, right? The things that are linked to all the grain brain and, and grain and wheat belly issues, right? And they gave people a whole wheat diet and they lowered their risk of metabolic syndrome by 38%. So again, we have so much science that just goes completely against the grain of what we're being told because it's super easy to say don't eat, don't eat wheat and don't eat dairy. And you will feel better. But, you're, but are we putting ourselves at risk for more serious problems down the road without really looking at the cause? And I believe that's what I really believe. And I really believe that's why I wrote Eat Wheat because the first half of the book is sort of debating all the science, which is fun, I think, to really see the other side. And I'm not, I'm not debating their science. I just think that that's how science is. You can prove that coffee is good or coffee is bad. You can prove soy is good and soy is bad. There's a lot of foods that are out there that are quite debatable. So I'm not saying that they don't have science to prove it. I think they've, they've misinterpreted some of the science, like with sugar being the link to the, the problem and now saying wheat is a sugar increaser where we have really good science to show that, that wheat doesn't act just like sugar in the body uh, because it's got a high fiber content, has a lot of, it's, the fiber in wheat is, is massive when you eat whole wheat. Now when you refine the wheat, yeah, we're gonna have issues with that for sure. Um, so, uh, so we wanna eat whole wheat, we wanna eat it in season, if you have digestive difficulties, rye, I'm sorry, spelt, has 40% less phytic acids in it. And phytic acids, even though they're hard to digest, have been linked to many, there's many studies show that they're actually quite beneficial. They say phytic acids will block mineral absorption and cause bone density issues and cause malnutrition because it blocks and globs onto minerals like zinc and magnesium and calcium and therefore it's bad for us because it causes bone density issues. But there's no science to prove that people who eat a lot of whole grains actually have bone density or mineral deficiencies. There's just no science to back it up. So again, we look and say, hey, look on this in the laboratory, phytic acids bind to these minerals, but maybe we're not supposed to get our minerals from wheat. Maybe we're supposed to get our minerals from vegetables. And, and, and there's something else that the body takes that the phytic acids blocks them so it can go into your large intestine. And this is what really cool science when I dug into this is that it's clear that the wheat isn't supposed to be broken down in every single aspect of the small intestine and be delivered as food. It's really clear that some of that's supposed to go down undigested into the large intestine to increase the production of short chain uh, fatty acids that like butyric acid 
which is linked to driving the entire immune system, linked to healing and repairing the cells of your intestinal tract, feeding the microbiology, the list of what butyric acid does, which is by the way, the number one fatty acid in ghee, clarified butter that we use in our cleanses, is phenomenal. So to say that, to say that, that just because it doesn't get digested, it's gonna rip your intestinal skin to shreds, well, it might do that if your intestinal skin is worked, inflamed, and irritated in the first place. But the only way that's going to happen is if the upper digestive coordination between your stomach, the salivary enzymes, the pancreas, the duodenal enzymes, and the liver bioflow has been altered in some way. And when you throw a bunch of 60 years of undigested fats into the mix and clog the liver, and the liver can't make the bile that it needs, you're not gonna poop good, because bile makes you poops, so you're not gonna go to the bathroom, it's gonna alter your bowel movements, which is very, very common. It's going, the bile is, is an emulsifier for the fats, the good ones and the bad ones, so now you have basically inability to break down the good fats, and, ability to, and an inability to get rid of the bad fats. So that's a problem with weight gain, delivering good fats causes mood-related issues, if you don't do it right. You following me here? So if the liver and the bile gets congested because of the years of bad fats, it affects your ability to, to, to process the good fats for your brain, for your heart, for your skin. It makes you age prematurely. It regulates your bowel movements, so it makes those altered. It gobbles up like a Pac-Man all the yuck inside your intestinal tract, including the bad fats and the toxins. And most importantly, it buffers the acid in your stomach. So if you eat a whole bunch of wheat, or meat for that matter, or soy, or, or nuts, which require a very strong acid, and the stomach says, I need a bunch of bile to buffer that acid, and the bile goes, man, we're like congested down here. I can't pull that. I, mean, I don't even know where we're going to get that kind of bile. And the stomach says, ooh, well, gosh, they're having a hard time. Then I'm just going to hold on to everything, and all the, everything that stays in your stomach and lingers in your stomach and causes indigestion and heartburn, and eventually it lets it go undigested into the small intestine. And here is the real kicker that hopefully you stay tuned for all this to hear this because it's the most important part. And this is the revolutionary part of eat wheat, by the way, is that when you don't digest well upstream, the stomach and in the stomach and the coordination of the gallbladder and pancreatic enzymes, proteins like gluten and casein will go undigested into the small intestine where they become too large to enter into the bloodstream and feed and nutrify the body. And they get absorbed into the collecting ducts of the lymphatic system. Uh, and the lymphatic system, as you know, ayurvedically, is the number one system that we treat. The first thing we look at is the drains in the body. Well, your lymphatic system is not just the drains. It drains waste, it delivers nutrition, it drains uh, uh, toxins from the body, it delivers energy, for example, when the body digests foods, it breaks down fats in a specific way, which you need good bile for, by the way. And if you don't do that, those fats, if those fats are designed as triglycerides to be broken down and delivered into the lymphatic system to deliver energy in between meals for every single cell of your body. So if you eat a meal and you don't digest it and all the undigested food like wheat and dairy hard to digest foods clog your lymphatic system and you can't deliver the good fats the triglycerides through that lymphatic system as your baseline energy supply which is now what the science shows the lymphatic system does you're going to have a food coma 
and you're going to have a food baby belly because the congested lymph science shows will push the, the fats out of the lymph into the local fat cells as an energy store reserve around your belly to drive, have energy for later on. And that's a big problem with blood sugar issues. And we know that belly fat is dangerous, right? So did you hear what I said? Undigested proteins go into your intestinal tract. They can't get into your blood. They get uptake into your lymphatic system where they congest and swell and inflame your lymphs and therefore not able to drive the energy as triglyceride energy into every cell of your body and make you tired and fatigued. Now, if those lymphatic systems, if those lymphs continually become, or the intestinal skin, which the collecting ducts of your lymph are in there, if it continually gets bombarded, right, can bombard with all these undigested foods and toxic chemicals and stuff, it's gonna irritate and inflame the intestinal tract, making more vulnerable and overwhelmed your lymphatic system. And I've written studies, articles about this where the aging process itself is linked to three things, the breakdown of three things, the quality of the skin of your intestinal tract, the quality of the lymphatic system that drains your intestinal tract from top to bottom, and the quality of the microbiology, your bugs, that depend on the intestinal skin and the lymphatic drainage for them to function well. Now, if that lymph system gets congested over time because of undigested food and literally your lymph starts in your digestion, it'll push into your skin lymph, creating rashes and hypersensitivity reactions. Respiratory lymph make you have breathing issues and hyperallergenic issues. And then the brain lymphs that I've written a ton about that were discovered a year ago in the University of Virginia. And they found these brain lymphs in the sagittal and transverse sinuses like a mohawk haircut, exactly where Ayurveda predicted them to be thousands of years ago, like a mohawk haircut. And Ayurveda said these brain lymphs drain toxins out of your brain and they're linked to mood-related concerns and cognitive issues. And now we find out science thousands of years later just a year old, that our brain through these lymphatic vessels drains three pounds of toxic plaque and chemicals out of our brain every single year. And if your lymphatic system is congested around your belly, you got extra weight around your belly because you have poor digestion and you blame it on wheat and dairy, and there's other foods that will clog that lymph as well, and you stop eating wheat and dairy, but you don't fix the digestion and the lymph, and that lymph congests around your belly. Now you have this metabolic issue around your belly because it's sort of an insulin surging kind of issue. And those lymphs congest your joint lymphs and your skin lymph and your respiratory lymph and now your brain lymph. And that is directly linked to now, the science shows, it's linked to cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, mood-related concerns, and the big one of all, autoimmune conditions, the enigma of our time. No one understands why they're happening. And Ayurveda said, these are the immune system turning on itself because the drains were clogged. And the body, as a result of a drain clogging issue, overzealously attacked what it thought was the problem. It's like fire trucks who can't get to the fire, uh, you know, you know, because there's traffic. We'll call it, we'll, we'll, more fire trucks will come. We have bucket brigades. You have an overzealous reaction to the fire, probably because we came late to the event. This is all written in Eat Wheat. It's a fascinating read to understand exactly what really happens in the body, backed by thousands of years of clinical experience, my 30 years of experience in Ayurveda and, and, and writing about modern science, 
putting this information together. And you know, studies show that when you look, and I go into the journals, and there's volumes of science about the lymphatic system in the research journals. And people, so experts say, from research journal to clinical practice in a medical doctor's office, 20 to 25 years. I don't want to wait 25 years to put this in practice, particularly since we know it's been used clinically for thousands of years. I've been using it for 30. Um, and when you put the science together with that, it, it's like, what am I doing? Sure, if you don't feel good eating wheat and dairy, don't eat it. I'm not asking you to do that at all, for sure not. But I'm saying, let's fix the digestion. And at the end of the day, if your digestion is so good, you can break bread with a friend again. Good bread that isn't, that, that's hard as rock in a day, that doesn't have any cooked oils in it or any preservatives that been fermented. It took three days to bake and you can eat that. Then why not, right? Eat it in season. Don't overdo it. Understand how this bread was supposed to be eaten. And then it gives you a way stronger digestive system that gives you the ability to, to detoxify this crazy environment. And yeah, be able to tolerate some bad food if we cheat and eat some pastry or something when we're on vacation or, you know what I mean? It gives us rope again, as opposed to going down this dietary road where we just keep eating less and less and less and less and less foods. It's just a fascinating discovery. And then the second half of the book, which I didn't get a chance to get into, which I promise you I will, and, and, and as we continue to take this journey with Eat Wheat, I promise a course on how to step-by-step -step reboot your digestion that will be a compendium course to the Eat Wheat book as a guide. Um, and that is coming for sure, to help people do this, because I'm so passionate about this. You know, One quick story. I know I've, I've told that story before about, about how deer eat you know, bark in the winter, and they have microbes to digest the bark in the winter, and they have microbes to digest leaves in the summer, and if they were to eat bark in the summertime, they won't have the right microbes. It could cause a level of indigestion. It could literally kill the deer, right? When I read that, I was shocked. I was like, wait a minute, you're telling me deer, deer die when they eat out of season? And humans, like, we don't even like know what's in season. We just eat it, with, I mean, the grocery store, I mean, some of us do farmer's market, which is great. But a lot of the stuff we eat is not in season. And deer die when they eat just a little bit out of season. The microbes in the soil from spring to summer to winter dramatically change. Those microbes attach to certain foods like wheat or corn. Not that I'm a big corn because it, yeah, it's got to be organic and, of course, non-GMO. But these microbes change and they attach to the foods and those foods become the source of our new, brand new microbiome to decongest us in the spring and get rid of heat in the summer and boost immunity in the winter. This is the new science. And we've completely disconnected ourselves from that. So yeah, we, we eat three times a day for 365 days of the year, overeat it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that's wrong. That's wrong for a lot of foods that we eat, but not just take wheat and dairy and call them bad foods. Let's fix the problem. So, of course, as you all know, I, I put together, I have a book called The Three Season Diet, all about eating with the seasons, but not enough people read that book. So I put together a monthly grocery list, superfood list, recipe list of all the foods for every single month of the year. It's called The Three Season Diet Challenge. It's a free monthly eating guide. All you gotta do is go to my website and sign up for it on the homepage. It's called The Three Season Diet Challenge. And you get every month in your inbox all the foods for January and February, March, or August and September and November every month for free to get us motivated to go, oh, these are in season. I like this and I like that. So you get a few foods every 
uh, so every month to kind of key on and to focus in on and some recipes you can play with and get us reconnected to the science of nature. Powerful stuff, because the new science suggests that humans have lost their connection to these cycles of nature. And the microbiology from the soil to the plant to our gut, that connection has been broken with non-organic foods and GMO foods and things like that. So um, thank you all for, for listening. Um, I am not going to dive into the how to fix this part yet. I promise that. You can get the Eat Weed book online right now for 99 cents till September 22nd. Uh, first, first rather, for 99 cents, and you can enter in our free contest and do a consult and $100 worth of free herbs and stuff. So that's kind of pretty cool as well. And read that, and then I promise you I'll put together a course for, you know, as a compendium to the book to make sure we all figure this out. And like I said, I'm not saying you must eat wheat, but I am saying you must be able to digest and navigate around the processed nature of all of our foods and the out-of-season eating that we do with all of our foods and start to put some logic back to this crazy dietary insanity that we have in America. Okay, so I'm going to answer some questions now. I have one here. Uh, what about the GMOs uh, and the pesticides used in wheat? Okay, well, GMOs... Um, wheat is not a GMO food, although they've experimented with it, but generally speaking, wheat is not a GMO food. However, if you don't get organic wheat, some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the Roundup, which is I think the next question, what about Roundup and all that, is that um, they, they produce these what are called BT toxins, which have been shown, and I've written about this, and linked to drilling little holes through our intestinal tract and making the, uh, the lymphatic access way more aggressive, the leaky gut syndrome way more aggressive. So that's why you really want to make sure, even if it's bad bread cooked with cooked oils and all the other ingredients that you don't know what the heck it is, make sure it's organic because this, this slow, because two things happen when it's not organic. Conventional foods have been sprayed. There's no bugs that are good for you on them. And there's potentially Roundup and BT toxins that are residual on them. So one way to navigate that is to actually eat organic the very best you can. And the second thing is get as few of these uh, chemicals and dough conditioners and additives and preservatives that are that I talk about in Eat Wheat in detail. I talk about uh, about a half a chapter on GMOs and the, the, the BT toxins and the Roundup in there as well. But generally the way to navigate that in short order is uh, eat organic, which is pretty cool and pretty easy to find when it comes to bread. Um, hi, uh, my sister discovered she has Hashimoto's disease after years of thyroid imbalance. Turns out she's extremely allergic to soy and wheat, which aggravates Hashimoto's. Are there any particular testing you advise before embarking on your program uh, to be on the safe side? Well, you know, no. Rebooting digestion doesn't require any testing. Definitely when you have situations where you're having a hard to digest, hard uh, time digesting soy, which is the, the king of anti-nutrients, by the way. And Monsanto was responsible for that, by the way. In 1959, they took this soybean, they brought it to America, right? I mean, I'm 60 years old. No one ever, 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 no one even knew what soy was. Soy sauce was, was you know, Asian food. I mean, we didn't know anything about soy. All of a sudden, it was in everything. And they can thank Monsanto for that. Processed the heck out of it. But soy in, in, uh, in China, for example, was considered a poison. In India, they don't eat soy. It's for the cows and for the animals. 
And it wasn't until I think 1400 years ago when one Chinese man figured out how to ferment the soy to break down the anti-nutrients that it went from being a poison in China, China to being introduced into the Materia Medica as a, as a, uh, as a medicine. The natto and the, uh, um, the miso and other fermented versions of soy. So again, here we are, really hard anti-nutrients. Some were just too hard for us to be part of our food supply. Soy was one of them. Wheat clearly was always a part of our food supply, contrary to what people like to think. So rebooting digestion is definitely, you don't need issues with that. But the, the, the Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition. Autoimmune conditions are linked to brain lymph congestion, central nervous system congestion. That's new science. So getting that on the road to decongest it. And you can't just decongest the lymph. You've got to reboot upstream as well. And that's what I'm talking about is a comprehensive approach to bring this back into balance. Um, I think it's pretty fascinating. Uh, another question here. Um, it is said that those with sluggish thyroid and especially Hashimoto should not eat wheat. What is your opinion? Also, cleansing lymph with herbs like mangista and dandelion tend to be drying. How can one use those uh, uh, with drying issues safely? And it is safe to use while nursing. Lots of great questions. Again, wheat. Uh, if you don't digest any food well, a hard to digest protein food like a grain or a bean or a legume, uh, they're not gonna, they're gonna congest your lymph and predispose you to these lymph-related issues. And for years and years and years, I, I remember saying to myself, I've never seen a thyroid condition that didn't have lymph congestion along with it. A goiter is sort of the cervical lymph just can't drain. Everything's just swollen. It's sort of the classic example of that. Um, cleansing herbs with lymph. Uh, you know, one of the things we, we like to do with lymphatic cleanses is cleansing those uh, the best we can in season. So you get a lot of dry herbs in the spring and the fall. That's when the body naturally goes through these things. And then you lubricate and nourish in the, in the wintertime. But that being said, if you're super congested, you got to detoxify anyway. And most people who are super congested overshot the, gl the gluey, congestive, mucousy, sticky runway by overeating wheat and dairy and, you know, a lot of heavy, rich foods. So generally, it's not the drying issue that causes people problems. It's the too much stickiness. But generally in nature, that was a season of these herbs that I'm describing, like mangista and dandelion and, and berries and cherries. They're spring and fall harvested, and that's when nature wanted some dryness to shovel out some of the yuck. And generally speaking, these are okay during nursing, but, you know, depending on uh, always starting with a very, very small, small amount. Is there a way to tell if you can eat gluten and dairy uh, like a test to confirm it? Well, um, you can get different types of tests for celiac disease, and that's the only con confirmation test to see that you really can't eat dairy or, or wheat, for example, or gluten, for example. Uh, dairy, uh, they're, they're, I write about in the book one test you can do, which, you can, which is a very common uh, situation, is you took organic whole cream, like whipping cream, and you, then you compared that with skim milk. Organic whole whipping cream has zero, uh, uh, zero protein in it. It has zero lactose in it, zero casein protein in it at all. All it is is pure fat. You eat whipping cream and feel yucky, you've got a gallbladder issue. You have a liver congestive issue. There's no, nothing in it that is dairy related. If you eat uh, skim milk, which is casein and lactose in it and feel bad, well, then you have upper digestive issues. So it's one way to sort of troubleshoot that. And I write about that in the book, and I've got articles about that on my website that you can get to right away about, you know, something like stop 
read this before you eat dairy or something like that. Um, but it's pretty interesting. Um, what <clears throat> wheat is drastically changed over the years from the wheat of our ancestors due to man altering it and pollution of our environment. Can our bodies really digest it properly or are there only specific types of wheat that can be trusted? Great question. Um, well, everything has been hybridized, right? And there's pollution on everything. So we can't just say wheat has pollution and wheat has been hybridized because everything's been hybridized. If you took the centenarian culture, people who lived over 100 years old, they all eat beans and grains and nuts and seeds and a very high whole grain diet. Very, very little meat, anti to what the paleo says, paleo pokes say. They say we should eat 10% of our diet or, or a lot, 40, 50, 60% of our diet is meat. Well, hunter-gatherers, according to the anthropologists, never ate that much meat. They weren't that great of hunters. Um, and, and we don't have the genetics, really, for that much wheat. And there's issues with that. Now, if you just eat a bunch of meat and a bunch of vegetables, you're going to force your body to burn your fat as fuel, and you'll lose a lot of weight, and you'll feel like, hey, this is great. I'm losing weight. It's got to be healthy for you. For a short order to help the body burn the fat stores, yeah. But if you do that, if you do that excessively, you'll force the body into a depleted state. Nature gave us a nutritional cycle that's 365 days long. as a high-protein, high-fat diet in the winter when you would eat sort of a paleo-ish, if it's not... The, the anthropologists say it's not really very paleo, the paleo diet, but a higher-protein, higher-fat diet in the winter, a very low-fat, high leafy green sprout berry and cherry diet in the spring, and a high-carbohydrate diet in the summertime, which includes fruits and vegetables and some of the grains that are harvested at the end of the season. So we, the nutritional diet changes dramatically for us. Our microbes change dramatically, and that supports us. Now, the hybridization issue, that's every food we eat, so how can you pinpoint that? The gluten content has not increased in the last 100 years at all. It's actually, if anything, decreased in, in some of the grains in the amount that we're eating. That doesn't make sense. Yes, ancient wheats will have more gluten in it, so if you're sensitive to gluten, then ancient wheats are probably not the way to go. There are some studies that show that some ancient wheats have less gluten, so that's a, a bone of contention, but there's plenty of science showing that it has twice the amount of gluten. So that doesn't really solve our problem by eating ancient grains, but ancient grains generally, if they're cooked, uh, if, they're, if they're grown organically, I think that's really the key. Uh, good whole grains that are not refined in any way, I think that's really the key. And how the, how the wheat is prepared, if it's been baked into a bread that's been soaked and, and fermented for a period of time, that takes out all the lectins, takes out all the, all the, the phytic acids, and it takes, not all of them, but significantly enough to make it digestible, and of course, breaks down the gluten and literally can render it gluten-free. So I hope that answers your question. These are great questions. Um, is the first step to eating wheat repairing the intestinal skin with ghee? Uh, what can a vegan or someone with a true, true dairy symptom use for the same healing properties? Um, is there such a thing as dairy-free butyric acid as a supplement? That's a great question. My gosh, that is a, I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, coconut oil is a medium-chain fatty acid. I don't know how much butyric acid it has. And that may be one, one solution. Olive oil, great for your intestinal skin if you get really good quality olive oil. I think I read a study that shows 70% of what we have on the market today has been diluted and, 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 and kind of, um, what do you call it, you know, um, diluted or, or to become less pure. Uh, so be careful about your olive oil. That's really important. Um, um, what other oils can we use besides ghee? 
Um, flaxseed oil is great, really good quali quality flaxseed oil. The 369 from Udo's Oil, really pure oil. He's probably the best manufacturer of really pure oils that you can get if you're looking for medicinal grade oils. Uh, that's a good way to go as well. Um, okay, good, good, good. Thank you for that. Um, let me uh, refresh some of these questions. Will, uh, will jumping on a trampoline help my lymphatic system? Yes, for sure. Um, I have trouble digesting protein and carbs altogether. Will, you, will this plan correct that? When you have protein and carbs, you know, it's what happens when you break down your intestinal tract. You can't break down the proteins. They become irritants to the intestinal skin. They rip it to shreds, cause inflammation in the gut and the lymph on the outside of the gut. And then the microbiology becomes altered and you lose the ability for you to process sugars and carbs as well. And they go blasting into your intestinal, through the intestinal wall, into the bloodstream in an overzealous way. So these problems aren't rocket science. They're logic. The body is incredibly logical. So when it's doing something illogical, like raising blood sugar or giving you indigestion or actuate around your belly, you know, again, let's try to understand it. So yeah, and, and you know, not to say that you know, this plan is instant cure. It took us many, many years to kind of figure this out. I really believe that, you know, as we get older, I hope people start to, to take responsibility for their own health and make it a lifelong venture. You know, so we really start thinking that being healthy is fun and it's enjoyable and doing things for health are, help make you feel better. And, you know, I wish I could say, here's the pill and take it and in two months you're digesting better, you'll be eating, you know, you know baguettes again. Well, no, that's probably not going to happen. I think a lot of, I have many, many patients you can now eat. We, we have about 30 different testimonies in the very front of the book. You can read that, um, uh, those testimonies and see those people. So people, yes, they are being able to eat weed again. But it's a, it's a journey. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm 60. I've been doing this for my, my whole life. And I still feel like I'm making a better digestive system, a more efficient digestive system, because that means I can detoxify well. And in a world that's toxic, I feel the better I can digest and detoxify, the better I can be a, a farmer to, to, to manage my intestinal skin and, 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 and fertilize it with the best possible nutrition I can the better. Does that mean that I'm a perfect eater? No, I, I still cheat and, you know, I have a sweet tooth like the rest of everybody else and I constantly fight against that. Um, but, but I think it's the momentum and, you know, I, in the, my wheat book or my, my, uh, three season diet book, I call it the 51% rule. If you're doing something 51%, that's the majority of the time. And if you can do it the majority, then the rest sort of naturally happens. And soon you're like, I don't really want that. No, thank you. And you just sort of naturally pass on some of this stuff that's not so good for you. But start with the, the 51% rule. But yes, we can reboot digestion. That's what it's all about. And not doing it just means, what do we do? We just continue eating the processed foods that they're serving us and taking more and more foods out of our diet. That you know sets us up for nutritional deficiencies and of course, the ability to detoxify. So lots of information. Um, uh, interesting uh, uh, take on eating wheat will also help us combat environmental pollution that gets into our bodies. How often do you suggest eating wheat, such as rolled oats, uh, in or out of season, uh, whole wheat? Does this mean uh, meat has similar benefits in combating the pollution? Um, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat wheat almost every day. That's why I'm wondering. Um, We evolved eating wheat, meat rather. I mean, there's no doubt about that. You know, the, you know, there's definitely doubts about 
how much wheat played a role, how much increasing starches, amylase increased starches, the genetic change there, how much that changed our ability to digest, uh, to, to digest wheat or other tubers and starchy foods. So there's, but meat definitely played a role. As we became better hunters and gatherers, we ate more and more meat. Um, again, centenarian cultures only eat about 10% of their diet as animal protein or meat, so they don't eat a lot and they live the longest. So there's some takeaway there that I think is, is valuable. Um, the, um, the idea, I think eating a predominantly plant food diet is the, absolutely the best way to protect ourselves from a toxic environment because the chlorophylls have been shown to protect us, the greens, to protect us from these toxins in our environment and repair and heal the intestinal skin to keep it as a strong barrier for us. I do think that that you know that not only that uh, his question was how often do you say eating wheat? Well, it really depends on your individual digestion. I think making an emphasis to eating more of it in season. We're not quite in that season yet. Um, sort of after allergy season in the fall, because what happens in the summertime is the digestion is the weakest. Remember we talked about in the winter, it's the strongest. Well, in the, in the summer, it's the weakest. And then after it becomes weak, it then starts to amp up for the winter and the fall. But that's after like the first frost. So we're not really in wheat season yet or bread eating season yet. It'd be a good idea not to be eating some, a lot of those foods yet. And then as winter comes in, you want the heartier foods. You increase the, the content, the, the intake of those. Digestion is amping up for you able to pull that off. So it depends on how much you do. And taking herbs, like, like we have a whole lot of herbs to support the ability to pull that off, like on my gentle digest formula, which has ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. All five spices amp up the production of stomach acid, increase bile flow, duodenal enzymes, pancreatic enzymes, and support lymphatic drainage. That's like the whole deal. In five spices, which were traditionally used for thousands of years, and now we have science, when you put them all together, all this magic happens. I'm not saying that it's going to be, it's not a digestive enzyme that digests it for you. It increases the production of your digestive enzymes. It produces the, increases the production of your stomach acid. So that's one thing that everybody can start with. Spicing with ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, cardamom, and ginger. Those are gentle digest form that has that. I've written articles about that. Read the science. Pretty powerful. If you go to my website and, and just type in, you know, rebooting digestion, I, I've written a ton about all this stuff as well. So that's really informative. Um, so how much you eat depends on who you are and where your digestive system's at. Um, can you speak about histamine response for wheat and dairy, uh, pressure behind the ears, brain fog, postnasal drip? Those are all lymphatic congestion, cervical lymph when it drains, you get beer congestion, you know, brain fog. When I talk about the grain brain syndrome, it's a brain drain syndrome. You can't say that all grains cause brain problems, issues. Grains that have been maybe refined that have a high glycemic index will cause high sugar and cause brain problems. But grains have been shown in study after study after study to lower the risk of Alzheimer's and increase cognitive function significantly. So that study, that science doesn't add up. But what they don't talk about is the real culprit, the breakdown of the upper digestion, the breakdown of the intestinal skin, the lymphatic congestion, and now the brain. It's only a year old research that they haven't even, Western medicine haven't even put this clinical pieces of the puzzle together yet. 
But when you look at ancient science, it's like, you know, all the lights start going off, and you're like, oh my gosh, what they were doing for thousands of years just makes sense. There's lymphatics in your brain that drain three pounds of toxins every year, and they found gluten undigested in those lymphs. So we got to get them out, and we got to support it, start it by digestive skin, and then do some lymph detox for sure. Okay. Um, uh, what supplements helps bile break down fast? Well, we have a herb called beet cleanse that is a, a, a decongestor for our bile ducts, which has beets and fenugreek and shilajit and cinnamon, all sort of rotorooters for the bile ducts. They're great. Beets, apples, uh, celery, artichokes, all rotorooters for the bile ducts. So those are some good ways. You start just by doing the, the gentle digest and the beet cleanse and add those, those beet cleansing herbs and you're in business. You're starting the process right. And then the lymph movers are all your red uh, berries and cherries and and uh, and pomegranates and cranberries and beets as well. Anything that will dye your skin or your clothes will increase lymphatic drainage. And our herbs that we use for that are, are the the uh, the uh, the mangista, one of my favorite lymphatic movers. Uh, a new formula we have called Lymph Cleanse that scrubs the intestinal collecting ducts and scrubs them out, called Lymph Cleanse, which is really powerful for circulatory lymph for like cellulite and getting this, the the microcirculation of the body to drain. We have an herb called uh, uh, Lymph Vein HP. And then the one for the brain is called Brahmi Brain, which is really good for the intestinal skin, sleep, cognitive function, and really important. New research on that shows it actually drains the micro-lymphatic channels, which are critically important. So those are some herbs to think about and know about as well. I wasn't going to go there, but you guys asked me. Um, does uh, Ancestry have anything to do with the ability to digest gluten? Um, great question. Uh, I don't know. You know, we all came from one sort of tribe of humans and then dispersed throughout the world. So originally we all had the ability to pull it off. But, you know, how much genetics change in different cultures who didn't eat wheat or dairy, that is a very good question. Does fiber content of wheat product affect one's ability to digest gluten? Absolutely. That's one of the best parts of wheat is it's a very, very high fiber content grain. And that's what delivers uh, the ability for it to attach to bile and take the bile to the toilet and help you detoxify uh, the fibers. Some of the things that help it lower heart disease and lower cancer rates and help increase better elimination and bowel function and reduce weight and, and blood sugar issues. All of those are, are, you know, thought to be related to the fiber content. So everything you've heard about wheat that's so bad, I mean, there's this really good science, and I cite that in like 600 studies in my book, that we've only heard one side of that story. Anybody has any questions you'd like to talk to me? I know we've gone over, and I'm so sorry, but I sort of knew this would happen. Sort of a, I think, interesting conversation in this time. Uh, you can push star two, and I'll, and I'll talk to a couple of you by phone. And of course, if you need to go, I understand I've already went over, and I apologize for that. Um, so, but if uh, you are leaving, just remember the ebook is available for 99 cents till September 21st. It's a super cool contest for that, and the hard book comes out in January. So, uh, stay tuned for that. And you can go either to my website at lifespot.com or eatweetbook.com. So, check that out. So, I'll answer a couple of questions. If anybody has any questions, just push star two if you have any questions. Um, love to hear from you. And, um, See, in the meantime, I can, while you guys are raising your hand. Um, what about candida? This seems to be a big topic. Yes, really important. And I have a chapter in the book called Sugar Belly, as opposed to Wheat Belly. And I talk about how sugar can predispose us to 
you know, the proliferation of candida, which is naturally occurring in the intestinal tract, but it can be overzealous and spread due to oversugar and, again, the breakdown of the intestinal tract. And I talk a lot about sugar and strategies to do that. We have a product that uh, is called Gut Revival, which has Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a yeast that actually antidotes uh, the, um, the candida and knocks it down the intestinal tract. And also that product has, has probiotics that have been shown to break down gluten like uh, like plantarum and lactobacillus bifidus lactis, both of those have been shown to break down gluten, but also uh, help to support the health of the intestinal skin and to be colonizing. So they stick to the gut wall. So you have new bugs taking place of the of the candida, which is being you know uh, helped and escorted out of the body via the the saccharomyces. So pretty good strategies, and I talk about a lot of those strategies to deal with candida, which is. Uh, Really important. Our John, here's a good question. Are you forgetting that wheat of today, even the organic wheat, has very little in common with the wheat of years past? It's been modified over and over again, even containing many times more chromosomes. Uh, this has not been what our ancestors were able to do. The chromosome change happened 10,000 years ago. The chromosome change hasn't changed since, since 10,000 years. So the, the hybridization initially took place many, many years ago. We have way long time for us to figure out how to digest the wheat of today. The only thing that the wheat of today has been hybridized, but didn't change necessarily the chromosomes of the wheat. It, but we've changed, we've, we've altered, we've, we've altered, you know, the way it grows and different things. And I don't particularly like hybridization, but it isn't genetically modified. So that's something that, um, that's something that, um, uh, and different wheats are, are designed for, for different kinds of baking, and some have higher glycemic indexes or lower glycemic indexes for sure. But I think you'll see that, that um, it, when you look at the science, and like gluten being this poison, the gluten of today in the, in the modern wheat isn't significantly higher than the, than, than the gluten of yesterday. So the, the science is sort of really all over the place on this, and I see science on both sides of the aisle, which is why I share this confusion. And just to say the wheat of today is just really bad, we've hybridized everything else, but just because we hybridize wheat is it bad, I feel like we're again, we're here we go missing the bubble. But, but truly respect the idea that when people don't, when people eat it, they don't feel good when they eat it, and therefore don't. But don't stop there. Reboot digestion and get that back on track. Um, and then see if you can. And, and definitely start with good quality wheat, ancient grains that are easier to digest in general. They have more antioxidants in general than the modern wheats do. So there are definitely things we can do to get better wheats. Uh, sprouted grains, whole grains, fermented grains. These are going to be way easier to digest. And I give you lots of strategies in the book how to do that. But just to throw, just because it was hybridized like every other food we eat on the planet, out the window, after, in many cases, way more years of genetics than most foods we're eating today, it doesn't add up, it doesn't make a bad, a bad food. Um, the processed nature of all of our foods is bad, and that needs to change. And so any bread that's been processed, I would highly suggest not to eat. But even with really good digestion, most people can handle a little bit of processed foods because, unfortunately... For now, that's the world we live in. Hopefully, the, the science will, will help the food manufacturers change that so we'll have really good, healthy food back in our diet. Many of us cannot, can, are eating really pure, but for the masses, you know, talk about the masses of people out there who don't know any of this, um, I sure hope the food industry will change that. Uh, is it better to eat sourdough bread as opposed to yeast-risen breads? Well, the kinds of yeast are kind of, yeah, the yeast, the bread, the yeast 
risen breads now, they rise in like an hour or two hours. They're really quick yeast where, where sourdough breads would take, you know, 24 hours for them to rise and really do their job and eat up all the gluten. So really good quality sourdough breads that have been, that have been cooked for at least 24 hours. Really good ones are three days. It's really awesome to eat that kind of bread. In season, not overeating it. Middle of the day is always the best time when the body can digest. It's hard to digest foods, and then you're, and then you're good to go. Um, all right, guys. Well, thank you all for listening again. Our next uh, e-course, so you want so to do not to forget, is going to be our next podcast is October 4th. It's acne, rashes, and wrinkles. It should be fun discussion about that. And then don't forget eatweetbook.com where you can get the Eat Wheat ebook for just 99 cents till September 21st. Enter our contest for a free consultation and $100 worth of free herbs to do that. And that's all available online either at eatweetbook.com or, or lifespot.com up until September 21st for 99 cents. Um, thank you all for listening and uh, thanks for all your really great questions. And I hope you understand that I am deeply respectful of folks who, who are gluten-free and, and are not able to do it. And, you know, if I can help you in any way um, reboot digestion, then you have the option to eat wheat or dairy or not. That is not the issue of today's discussion. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. John Duyard.